Matthew 21, and we're going to start at verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. And this story uh, that Jesus tells us uh, is simple, isn't it? Simple. But first impressions, uh, they can deceive. Obviously, the story is very short, just three or four sentences, verses 28 to 30. And verses 31 and 32 are the commentary or the explanation um, of the story from Jesus himself. And we're going to just take each in turn, and we're going to pause briefly in the middle uh, to consider those two questions which frame the story. Those two questions, verse 28, what do you think? And verse 30, which of the two did the will of his father? You see, Jesus, he's, he's enticing his listeners to think really carefully, to think for themselves. So we'll do really well to think slowly and carefully this morning also. Let's feel the story a little before we dive any further. The story, it's about a man and his two sons. We'll call the man Norman, because he's a man. But he's also a dad to two boys. Uh, the first son we'll call Freddy the first, and the second son we'll call Seth the second. Um, and it's not necessarily that they are necessarily the firstborn and the secondborn. Uh, they seem to just be in that order without any specific reason at all. Perhaps on this particular day of the story, Freddy the first came down to breakfast before Seth. So our scene is set. And it's not hard to picture the scene, is it? Norman sits at the head of the table with his two strapping young lads. They're finally of age, having gone through all those phases of life from tiring toddlers to testing teenagers. Finally, Norman's lads are all grown up. And so this simple instruction comes to each of them in turn. Freddie first, my son, it's time you're old enough. Go and work in the vineyard today. It's worth just pausing for a moment to consider this question. Uh, Go and work in the vineyard today. Clearly, the expectation is that the son will work in daddy's business. Back then, that was expected. Nowadays, uh, the thought of having to follow the family business model and limit one's career is far too restrictive for most people. People want to follow their dreams and their career paths. I mean, we could note just how individualistic our culture is. We could note how often the devil uses the idea of careers to distract us. Because careers really are very pagan ideas by design. So maybe we should take warning of that. But the point is, really, in the first century, son, go work in the vineyard today, it was a perfectly reasonable request. Arguably, it was even a kind request. It was an opportunity to go and become the next man of this household, welcomed in as an equal. We digress. Let's go back to the story. Uh, Freddie is up first. 
His response, it's honest and it's straightforward. I will not. Uh, We're not told why, just that he refused. Uh, Maybe he wants to do something else with his life, possible. Uh, Maybe he was just lazy, possible. Uh, Maybe something else, we're not told. Only that, it's a blatant rejection. No way, not on your Nelly. But over time, maybe throughout the day, Freddie came to see that what his father was asking of him was actually reasonable, right, and good. And so eventually, maybe after a few tears, tussles, and tantrums, eventually, he went. He literally changes his mind. He repents. He turns around. A simple 180. Freddie repented from his initial rejection. Seth the second, though, he was the opposite of Freddie. Keen as a bean, only too happy to try to please daddy. But he didn't follow through on his initial first impression. When Seth the second came to the breakfast table, he was asked the exact same question as Freddie. Seth, it is time to take up the family business. Go and work in the vineyard today. Notice not because Freddie failed. The offer seems like it would have come either way. See, the story is all about the contrast between the two. Seth immediately sticks up his hand to volunteer first. Eagerness painted across his face. Perhaps he knows he's doing the right thing in that moment. Perhaps he really wants to please the father. Verse 30, I go, sir, or literally Lord, master. It was normal and right for a son to address their father as such back then. That was a very normal way of approaching and speaking to your father. You see, Seth's yes, it was as strong and as clear as Freddie's definite no. And in one sense, the only thing that these two brothers ended up having in common was that they both repented. See, Seth repented just like Freddie. Only Seth's repentance was from the right response to the wrong response. Seth had all the promise and none of the follow-through. All talk and no walk. He said one thing and then did the exact opposite. He looked the part, but only disappointed. End of verse 30, he did not go. Devastating. So we have Freddie and Seth, the first and the second, starting in opposite positions, one in the good books, the other in the bad, and then switching so that they end up in the other's starting position. It's a simple enough story, isn't it? It's not wildly surprising, but it is a powerful little story, isn't it? What's the story about in a word? Obedience, right? Obedience. Who did the will of his father? Not a hard question, is it? Um, Anybody could ask this rightly. I actually asked my little Clara, five-year-old this morning. She knew instantly the first Freddie the first did the will of the father. That is so obviously right, isn't it? You don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure it out. And it's worth noting uh, that clearly uh, neither of these sons are perfect. I mean, the perfect response, what would it have been? It would have been, uh, yes, father, 
then off they go. But ultimate obedience, that is the question in hand. Who did the will of the Father? See, the comparison, that is the key for us. Uh, Both sons rebel in some way. Neither are perfect. But Freddie I ends commended only because he ultimately obeyed. It's not where you start, but where you end up that counts. And what really brings this little story into sharper focus is the fact that Seth II promised to go. That's what brings it into sharper relief for us, doesn't it? Nobody likes people who promise much then deliver nothing, do they? It's a good summary of politicians, isn't it? And obviously nobody likes them, especially when you do things like that. Now, I think we could make a misstep here and apply what is a true thing, but not something that the text is actually teaching us. You see, we we could now at this point apply, um, beware of being Seth the second. See, obedience to God really matters. Uh, Don't just talk like a Christian, but obey the Father. Listen to what he really says, and then actually do it. Uh, Let's not have a veneer of outward religious trappings like Seth. Uh, Don't be hypocritical like Seth. Don't be two-faced like Seth. You know how James chapter 1 puts it? And be doers of the word, not not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Or even a a, a maybe slightly different angle on the same idea. And beware of appearances. Uh, Wait for the end of time to see who really stays the course and follows through as Christians. Uh, Don't judge prematurely. Seth II, he looked the part, didn't he? He talks the talk just like maybe our bishops of today, but he'll never walk the walk. You see, these are all true things which the Bible does actually say, and we could teach them from here in one sense. It's certainly the easiest thing, I think, to do when applying this. But can you just for a moment just have a think why that isn't how we should be applying this? I'll give you a moment to think about it for yourselves. Why shouldn't we apply this passage like that? Because because it's good. It's truth from the Bible. It's just not for my money. It's just not what this bit of the Bible is saying. So what do we think? Why can't we do that? Just for a moment, notice who Jesus is saying this story to here. In other words, when when Jesus asked that question in verse 28, what do you think? Who is the you referring to? Scan your eyes back a few verses to see who the you must be. And you see there in verse 23, this parable is clearly a continuation from last week's passage. He's addressing the chief priests and the elders of Israel. And don't forget where he is. Picture this scene. Jesus is in the temple. So he's telling this simple but devastating story. As he's telling it, he is surrounded by the pillars of the glorious new temple and the hubbub of the aftermath of his recent um, judgment and scattering of the money. It's right next to him. Quite a moment suddenly, isn't it? As we realize that. And as he's asking these temple leaders in the temple to think for themselves, It brings it all into sharper relief. Pharisees, elders, leaders of the temple, you make the judgment call. Verse 28, what do you think? 
It's incredibly bold, isn't it? He's in the heart of the lion's den and he entices them in with this most powerful story, almost luring them into a debate. It's a story which takes about 20 seconds to tell. And in just 20 seconds, Jesus has nailed them. And the Pharisees and the elders, they're not stupid. And they see no reason to lie right now in this moment, unlike last week where they feared the people and say lied. See, they don't see the deeper meaning of this story. The story, it's worked to show them their ultimate rejection. What do you think? I love this about Jesus. He's so ruthlessly logical. He tells them a story so simple, yet so apt to capture the moment. And he, he's using it to expose these leaders who would want to be, who would want to be like Seth the second. See, and, and, and notice how Jesus sharpens the question from verse 28 to his follow-up question in verse 31. Who do you think did the will of his father? Choose between these two, Freddie or Seth. Come on, leaders, let's make a choice. It's an either or. Very simple. A five-year-old could do it. This is why I think we need to be careful when applying this. This story, it's not just a mini piece teaching about obedience to the word in a, in a section which is all about the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus. We are not the Pharisees. Remember who Jesus is speaking to. Remember where he's saying this. Remember the context of these chapters. We are in a very specific part of Matthew, which is all about rejection of the Son in a specific moment, where in a very specific um, group of leaders, these Jewish leaders, in a very specific place, the, the Jewish temple, which Jesus has just judged to be like a leafy fig tree. Those Jewish leaders... They're rejecting Jesus, their own Messiah, in fact. And it's all in God's plan, as we'll see next week in our memory verse. But we're not the Pharisees. We mustn't too quickly cast ourselves into the story. Do you know that Bible handling tool, which can be so helpful so often? The, the, the who I am, who am I tool? Who am I tool? Well, more often than not, the answer to that question, who am I in the story? It's nobody. I'm not in this story. I'm not like the father. I'm not like either son, really. The best candidate for us, hopefully, would be Freddie the first. But this parable, it's really all about Seth the second. So we just need to be slightly careful here, don't we? Especially because... Jesus tells us exactly how to interpret this parable. So we come to the explanation. Who's who in the story? Who's who in the story? Look at the end of verse 31. For the first time that I can see in the whole of Matthew's gospel, Jesus openly makes a personal application of one of his parables. And he applies it to the Jewish leaders. Truly, I say to you. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they go into the kingdom before you. Before you. So now we know who is who in the story, right? Freddie the first represents the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Seth the second is the you. That is the Jewish leaders of the day. The hearers of this parable in the temple itself. 
So the first then, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they are of a scum, really. Certainly in the leader's eyes, they're the outcasts, the lowlifes, the unexpected entrants. Those who the Pharisees would have turned their noses up at, the despised, the, the riffraff. See, the logic was really obvious to them, wasn't it? The religious elite, they thought, uh, these people, these riffraff, uh, they have no place in respectable religious Jewish society. So how much less in the kingdom of God? But that's precisely where they are so wrong. No doubt that these scummy outcasts of society, they were sinners. Often elsewhere in Matthew, he calls them such. They were sinful rebels, all right. But that's not the question that's at hand here. Remember, neither son is painted as perfect. And rebels can always repent. Beautiful, isn't it? The gospel in a nutshell. Rebels repenting. The gospel really is for sinners. If they turn to God for forgiveness. And we've seen that time and time again, haven't we? In this glorious section about the kingdom of God. But the focus isn't really on the first son, the scum, those getting in first. Certainly part of the story, but only really to show the contrast, to show us the contrast. The, the focus is on Seth, the second son, the leaders of Israel, the you to whom this parable is spoken. And as Jesus speaks to them, they promised such obedience but they aren't obedient at all. Uh, they were all talk and no walk. They, they said they would lead the people, but they didn't. They made the temple into a den of robbers. Oh, how despicable, how horrific, how treacherous, how ugly. And just look again at the end of verse 31. Jesus is so emphatic. Truly, I say to you, the, temple, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Shocking to them that these social outcasts are the first in. And we must really feel that shock and check for ourselves. Is that the ordering that we have in our thinking when we think of God's kingdom? Who's going in first? Who's going in first? Now we need to pause for a moment because there's a certain amount of debate surrounding that word before. Do you see there the penultimate word of end of verse 31? Is the before you leaving a certain amount of wiggle room for these leaders to come in next or, or second, if you like? The plainest reading, it says, well, God's kingdom will reverse the priorities of the world, Right? But is this simply just a demotion for these leaders, down a step on the ladder? Or is this actually implying a kind of total exclusion? I'll leave you to decide what you think for yourselves. Certainly, though, by the time the next parable is delivered, which we'll hear next week, we're left without any doubt. The door is not left ajar at all. Once the tax collectors and the prostitutes go in first... The door is locked and bolted with the key thrown away. There is no hope 
for these leaders. Unless, of course, they choose to repent. It's that simple. See, first and foremost, uh, we need to see just how awfully hypocritical these leaders are. They were awful. They needed to be judged, desperately needed to be judged. And by chapter 23, they're going to have, have woes upon woes upon woes upon woes layered upon them. And we need to know now why that is so right. So when we think of Jesus, do we have a place in our thinking for him to be the judge and a perfectly right one at that? Do we see him judging here as necessary to bring in the kingdom of God? Uh, do we see Jesus, do we, do, sorry, do we want Jesus to turf out these unrepentant failure of leaders? There's one final piece of the puzzle that we need to slot in to really grasp hold of this whole passage. Our final verse, verse 32. Jesus' explanation of the parable is kind of extended here. Verse 31, he basically says to the leaders, you, you're like Seth II, shut out of the kingdom. Indeed, you've just convicted yourselves as such. But Jesus' explanation, verse 32, it's so surprising, isn't it? Did you spot it when Simon read it to us? I think we expect to say something like, for I, Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to call the righteous but sinners. Or perhaps, for God the Father sent me to proclaim the kingdom of God to you. Look at what he actually says. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Why does Jesus suddenly equate believing John with obeying the Father? Do you feel the surprise? And to grab hold of this, we need to remind ourselves of where we were last week. That this parable, which follows straight on from last week's chat with the leaders in the temple, as we've already observed, Jesus, Jesus told this story in the shadows of the pillars of the temple and in the aftermath of the chat about John the Baptist. Let's, let's see it very clearly. Verse 23, the, the leaders, they wanted to know where Jesus gets his authority from. So Jesus, who clearly considers himself tightly bound on point with John, challenges them as to where John's baptism came from. Verse uh, 25, was it from heaven or from man? So with that previous John chat reverberating on, Jesus drives his point home in this parable. If John is from heaven, they have to believe what John said about Jesus, that God's king of all time and space is here. So they have to repent. So they want to say, no, John's baptism is from man. But again, they've got a problem um, from the, those previous verses. If they, if they say John's baptism is from man, then the crowds who regard John highly, they will revolt. See, bottom line is, these leaders, they are not Christian. They're politicians. They're all talk and no walk, all the look and none of the substance. We just need to remember what Seth failed to do, don't we? They failed to repent, just like the leaders are failing to do here. But here, Jesus, he picks it all up and he says, 
so as to say, you missed John. He was your prophet. You of all people, you should have recognized John as the last of the prophets of old. He was the prophet that Malachi and Isaiah spoke of. The one who would be the big pointer to the Christ. No wonder you missed the Christ. You missed John, the one pointing to Jesus. And sure, they have the same message of repentance, but really he was meant to be the big giveaway clue to you guys, to you of all people. See, John the Baptist is the best argument Jesus can reach for here, for these people in front of him. What's more, these tax collectors and prostitutes, they did actually believe John, didn't they? Yet, end of verse 32, even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. See, the reason why we find John being brought up here and aligned so tightly with Jesus is because we forget who Jesus is speaking to and where he's speaking it. And that lands us in application. I think this gets quite tricky. So try and hold on and try and think this through for yourselves later on. I think we need to be slow and careful. I've really wrestled with this, so come and tell me where you think I'm wrong later on. How do we apply all this stuff about old Israel's leaders being judged? Uh, Let's start by just thinking of the first century original readers first. Uh, That will stop us from applying just a generic true idea about obedience or or something else like we discussed earlier on. Imagine for a moment living in the first century. Jesus is gone. The merry men of the apostles, they're trying to spread the word and they're getting persecuted harder and harder and harder as they proclaim. Where does that persecution primarily come from? One of the key places of persecution, unsurprisingly when you consider how Jesus spoke to them, comes from the old traditional religious establishment. They wanted to hold on to power. They didn't want to cede power to Jesus, who indeed claimed to be the new temple. How crucial, therefore, this chapter becomes in aligning our minds. Jesus is not a bolt out of the blue. He comes from John and the prophets of old. Yet Jesus does come to judge this old way of doing things. And it is a good thing, a right thing, a necessary thing. They taught the talk but they didn't walk the walk. Of course, we'll go work God's vineyard, they say. But when push comes to shove, they will not repent. They won't be Christian. They'll just be politicians. Those original readers, they needed to know to ignore old Israel who failed to repent. Jesus, he rightly casts them off. So that's for them then. But what about for us now? I think it's really tricky, isn't it? We, we tend not to look, I think, from what I can tell, to old Israel in any way and wonder to ourselves, maybe that's the real deal. Was Jesus really right to judge them? 
I mean, there isn't even a temple in Jerusalem to look at and be confused by anymore. It's not quite the same, is it, for us? But maybe that's the point. Who was right and who was wrong here? Jesus. He's the righteous judge. And it really, really usefully gives us clarity. Jesus really is the great king of all time, who when he saw such hypocrisy, changed the world order. Gwilym helped us start thinking about this last week. The change from the old Israel to new is such a cataclysmic change that we struggle to get our heads around. And it helps us get real clarity, doesn't it, about the continuity both of the Old and New Testaments, as well as the discontinuity, how Jesus changes things completely. Jesus rightly cuts himself off from these den of robbers. And I think that's something we can praise God for. We can praise God for. What a king we have and what a kingdom we are now part of. I wonder, I think we do really well to not overly focus on Norman or Freddie or Seth for that matter, but focus really on the great storyteller himself. There, I think, we can't go too far wrong. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this short yet devastating story. Help us learn rightly from it. Help us wrestle and feel its punch. And help us fix our eyes ultimately on the storyteller, King Jesus himself. What a great, what a marvellous king he is. Turn our gaze to Jesus, we pray, the, the true, the right the necessary judge of Israel of old. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Amen.